Well, good morning, everyone. You know, as the kids make their way out and head downstairs for uh, Sunday school and for what God has for them, I'm reminded that uh, we have kind of a, a fun special announcement to, to share with you all this morning uh, because uh, Paul and Nina Kamarji have welcomed their son into this world. Now, I know uh, as this goes, uh, coming to settle on a name is never an easy thing for parents, but they have settled on Ezra Paul, and, and I cannot wait to get my hands on him, to hold him, to hold him up before you all and introduce him, and, and to welcome him into the, the church family, the family of faith uh, that we have here this morning. So uh, I was hoping there might be a sighting, but uh, it, it looks like uh, as is uh, a growing family with a newborn at home, that doesn't seem likely this morning, but uh, we can all hold our breath together in excitement for, for seeing him. Hey, uh, allow me to take a moment just to give thanks for him and for the word of God that we have this morning. Father, we, we are thankful. We're grateful because uh, in the midst of the darkness and the evil, evil we see in this world, we are reminded of your hand of of steadfast love and faithfulness, your hand of care and provision, the, the fact that you are our shepherd and, uh, and, and our father, you're our creator, you're our redeemer, you are all these things. And Lord, I pray that, that, that we would not miss these moments where we are reminded that in, in the midst of the darkness, you are light. You're the giver of life. And, uh, and so we thank you, Lord. We thank you for Ezra Paul. We thank you for your hand of care and protection on Nina and, and certainly in giving strength uh, to, to Paul in supporting Nina and caring for Ezra and Elias. Lord, we thank you uh, for this new role and responsibility you've called big brother Elias into. And we pray that you would guard his little heart and, and strengthen him for that task. And Lord, we know that uh, all of this comes from the wellspring of life and knowledge we've been given in your word through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we come before your word this morning, not just giving thanks for the things you've done, but, but more specifically giving you thanks for the ways that you've revealed yourself to us, and not just with a knowledge and a wisdom, but the life you've given us in and through your word as, as recorded for us and as kept for us in the scriptures. And so, Lord, we just pray that as we open the scriptures together this morning, that your spirit would move in our hearts, that it would be a word that transforms us, that it would be a word that grows our faith, that allows our hearts to fall deeper in love with you, Lord. So, Lord, may your spirit have his way in and among us as we open your word together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you brought them, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be in the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2. It's, uh, I believe, page 837 in the Bibles that are in the seat back in front of you. So go ahead and open those up if you would. And I'm going to read uh, the passage for us. And then we'll spend some time kind of unpacking what we see and hear and understand and what God wants for us to walk away with today. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Allow me to read them for us now. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. 
And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, just, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word for us. It's important that we know that this is not just a story. This is not just something that happened. This is God's word that he has chosen to reveal to us. And it's a great story for us to examine and to understand that, that, that our hearts too may be like the people's where, where we would be amazed, where we would be amazed by what we're reading and seeing and, and, and that we too might glorify God and say we've never seen anything like this in this world. You know, when we're reading the Gospels, it's, it's sometimes easy or tempting to, to be drawn in by the miraculous like we see here. When, to, to be drawn in by seeing Jesus perform miracles and, and, and signs and wonders. But, but here's the thing. The, the simplicity of it, the, the, the easy thing would be to go for the low-hanging fruit, right? It would be to, to go for the, the low-hanging fruit and to read a passage like the one I just did and walk away thinking that, that all we have to do is believe and Jesus will heal our problems, right? All we have to do is learn to believe more or believe better or, or, or have a better faith and then Jesus will, will heal my problems like he healed the paralyzed man's. I think it's, it's tempting to, to read these verses through the lenses of our own circumstances and to, to interpret it thinking, okay, if Jesus is going to do this for this paralyzed man, he's going to fix my issues at work or the, the problems I have in my family or, or the, 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 the amount of money I've gotten in my Bank, bank account, and all I have to do is just trust him enough. But that's just simply not true, is it, church? That's not how, that's not the life that Jesus calls us to. That's not what it means to have faith. See, to understand what Mark is showing us, we need to look a little bit deeper at the text. We need to look a little bit deeper at what's being uh, revealed to us, what's being shared with us. And I, I promise you that you will be blessed just as the paralyzed man was. It's not a promise that Jesus is going to change your circumstances like he did for the paralyzed man. But it is a promise that Jesus will bless you as he's blessed the paralyzed man. Because more than a man, 
And, and more than a miracle worker, Jesus, here in Mark chapter 2, is beginning to show us that, that, that he is God himself. And as God, Jesus has the authority to do what we truly need done. Chapter 1 of Mark has, has been showing us some of these miraculous things that Jesus has been doing in the public's eyes, right? E even if Jesus is trying to avoid the attention being drawn to him, the public is becoming aware, words getting around, that Jesus can, can heal lepers, that he can, he can uh, cast out demons, he can heal people who are sick. And, and all along the way, Jesus saying, don't tell anyone about this. Yeah, right? He sends, last week we looked at the, the story of the leper. He sends the leper away saying, don't tell anyone about this. Just go and show yourself to the priest that, that they may confirm that you've been healed according to the Mosaic law. Right? Don't, don't tell anyone that I did this. But here in Mark 2, Jesus' ministry starts to take a turn. Starts to, to change a little bit. It becomes more public. Jesus is no longer saying, don't tell anyone about this, but now he's starting to explain a little bit about what he's doing and what he's accomplishing. Capernaum is, is Jesus' kind of home base for ministry, and, and he's uh, coming back from this kind of and, and, and healing and, and doing these things, and so now he's, he's coming home to, to Capernaum, and he brings his work home with him. Right? We're told that, that, that he's preaching the word to a house that's filled to overflowing. Right? This is not like a big open room house like this. This is like one of those older houses with smaller rooms. And, and the thing about houses back then was that they had courtyards in them. So even, uh, even if the room was full, people could be standing in the inner courtyard listening in on Jesus as he's preaching and teaching. As contemporary readers, when, when, we, when we read a passage like this and we hear that he was preaching the word, we tend to picture in your mind, in my mind, uh, you know, a pastor standing up behind a pulpit like this in a room full of people who, who are facing the, the preacher and giving their, their, their best attention to the preacher, right? Yeah, not enough of you are awake right now. <laughs> Your best attention to the preacher, right? Yeah, so that's what we picture in our contemporary minds, right? Preaching the word to the people. But, but Jesus isn't standing behind a pulpit. He, he's not standing behind the pulpit inviting the people to open their Bibles as I did this morning to a passage that they're going to look at. See, the word that, that, that Jesus is preaching is the word of God revealed throughout the law and the prophets and, and, and the, the words of Moses, Right? This is not just a scroll that Jesus opens. He, he's, he's preaching the word of God revealed to the people of Israel, the promises of God that have been unveiled and unrolled throughout history and are now being fulfilled in his own life. One of my favorite passages to read at Easter, uh, and, and I've even, I believe I've preached on it here on Easter morning. Maybe it was this past year, if my memory fails me, or it doesn't fail me, but is, is the story in Luke about the two disciples who are traveling to Emmaus on Resurrection Sunday. Right? Jesus had just been crucified. They, they, they were sad. They were, they were downcast. They, were, they were just kind of felt defeated, walking back. And Jesus, they don't recognize him, but Jesus comes up alongside them and, and starts talking with them. Do you remember what Jesus says to them? Look at Luke 24. 
I'm going to just read three verses for us, 25 to 27. Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus preached the word to these two disciples. He interpreted to these disciples the promises of God, the plan of God as unfolded throughout all the law and the prophets. He he does it in such a way to explain to them that that this day was necessary when Jesus, the, the Christ, the Son of God, God's anointed king, must die in order that they might have life. And it wasn't just something he decided to do on a whim, but it had been planned since the beginning of time, and it could be seen throughout all the scriptures, but Jesus would need to preach the word to them would need to interpret the scriptures to them in such a way that they could see the plan of God and the promise of God in the word. And so here in Mark chapter 2, Jesus isn't just giving like the evening news or, or telling stories and reports from his journeys throughout Galilee and the interactions of the people he met. He's interpreting the scriptures to them. He, he's saying to them, listen up, people. There's something very special going on because the promises of God and the plans of God are being fulfilled right now. If you flip back, actually, if you're still on page 837 of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you or Mark chapter 2, if you just look back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we get a taste of what Jesus preached where Mark records Jesus proclaiming, the time is fulfilled. Now is it, people? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, this is important for us to understand what Jesus is doing when these men bring this paralyzed man into the crowd. It's important for us to understand that Jesus is preaching the promises and plan of God to a packed house, interpreting to them throughout all the law and the prophets what was intended to happen, what God had planned to do, what God had decided to do and was doing. And it's into this context that these four men carry a paralyzed man before Jesus. Now, I think we can infer from what we know of Jesus' ministry and reputation but also I think we can infer from man's, the man's current condition that, that these men haven't come to hear what Jesus has to say. I'm not, I'm not dogging on these men. In fact, I actually, the text doesn't specifically say why these men came, but it, came, it does tell us what they did when they got there, right? So I'm making an assumption here. But I'm assuming these men weren't necessarily there to say, oh, let's hear what this Jesus has to say. What we can also assume is that these men came to help this paralyzed man get close to Jesus because he had a problem, right? And when they can't get close to Jesus to have him touch and heal their friend, they crack open the roof of the house and lower him down in. Now, 
Again, as we're reading this text, as we're listening, if we imagine what it might take to open this roof and to lower a person down in, it seems like an astronomical task because it is, right? You'd have to get them up on the roof, right? We're imagining how difficult that would be. You have to maybe use a sawzall or something like that and, and, and open a, a hole in the roof big enough to, to lower this man down. You got to get some rope that would help lower him down in. It seems like a big task, but it wasn't so astronomical back then. I mean, there's there boards on, stacked on top of boards, which are not boards, but, but um, uh, long poles, wooden poles that, that you could remove. It wasn't a simple task, but it wasn't as astronomical and as, uh, as, as challenging. It's not like these men were doing the impossible by lowering their friend into Jesus's task or um, presence. And so regardless, the men, they... they, they uh, they, they lower their friend into the house and into Jesus' presence. And this is where we see Jesus' ministry become more public and even more controversial. Look at what Mark tells us in verse 5. After they had lowered their friend into the house, into Jesus' midst, Mark says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Child, your sins are forgiven. Now, again, as, as we said before, prior to this moment, Jesus had, a, had, had tried to avoid or, or avoided the attention that was coming his way because of the signs and wonders he was performing. He, he, he avoided the attention uh, that, that, that came his way by crowds, and, and he avoided making it clear who he was and what he came to do but no longer, right? No, no longer is he trying to uh, keep it a secret or keep it quiet who he is and what he has come to do, right? Jesus didn't want crowds coming at him. He didn't want the attention for the things he did. He wanted their attention around who he was and what he would accomplish, not through signs and wonders, but through his death and resurrection, and so Jesus turns up the heat on his ministry when he says, child, your sins are forgiven. Now, that doesn't seem like a very shocking statement for us, like in, in, in our, from our perspective. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not often you hear someone come and apologize to you for something, but, but you know, to say, okay, you're forgiven, that, that, that doesn't necessarily shock us. But it was an extremely shocking statement for Jesus to make in that crowded room and in the presence of the teachers of the law. Now, I, I think there could be some confusion for us around this, but it's pretty obvious that, that, that this man wasn't lowered down into, the, or at least the, for these people, this man wasn't lowered down into the room to have his sins forgiven, right? That's our confusion. The, the shock and the confusion for the teachers of the law is something else that we're going to get to in a minute. But, but the confusion we might feel is saying, well, wait a minute, wait, you know, if we were this paralyzed man or if we were his friends, well, let's say, wait a minute, Jesus, thank you for doing that. Thank you. For, for forgiving my sins, but um, <laughs> this is awkward. That's not really why we're here, right? I, I don't know if you can see, but, but our friend here, he, he can't move. 
He, he can't get up. He can't walk. He can't, he, he can't do those things. We're, we're here for, for, for something else. Jesus, thank you for forgiving us uh, 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 or for forgiving his sins, but he, he doesn't need help with his sins, Jesus. He, he needs help with this pesky paralysis that's, that's holding him back, that, that's keeping him from a happier life, a better life. Can't, can't you see that, Jesus? And, and as I mentioned, the, the paralytic, he's not the only one who's, who, who's, who's shocked and confused and bothered by, by what Jesus has to say. The, the teachers of the law have an issue with what Jesus does because, and they rightfully do because they know that only God can forgive the sins of man, right? I mean, it's not obvious to us in reading the passage, but before we get on, on the case of these teachers of the law, let's just acknowledge this. They're right. They're right for being upset, or, or at least their anger, though it's, it's wrong, is driven by the right belief that only God can forgive sins. Consider this scenario for a moment. It's completely made up, so, so don't think I actually did this. But, but imagine that I reached into your wallet or your purse and I stole $20 from you, right? How would you feel? You would feel hurt. You would feel anger. You would be, you, your, your trust in me would be broken, right? You would kind of wonder, who is this man who's standing up there in the pulpit teaching about God's word? He just stole $20 from me. There would be a brokenness between us, right? We, we might be able to get along and stand in the same room together, but let's face it, there would be something we couldn't necessarily put our hand on or fingers on in, in our relationship, in the air between us, right? Now, here's the situation. Oh, wait a minute, let's pause for a beautiful sound. That, my friends, is Ezra Paul. All right, back to my story now, okay? Like, ah, cute baby, blah, blah, you know. No. Now imagine, here I am, standing up here preaching, I've stolen $20 from you, and you're like, you know, there's this issue going on. So I say, okay, Pastor Moses, come on up here. Pastor Moses comes up and, and, and say, go ahead, Pastor Moses, would you give me forgiveness? And Pastor Moses forgives me for stealing $20 from you. And I say, all right, see, we're good. Right, everything's taken care of. Our problem is fixed because Pastor Moses forgave me. Would you feel better? No. Why? Because the offense wasn't against Pastor Moses. It was against you. I stole that money from you. I need your forgiveness. I don't need Pastor Moses. Well, I mean, there are things I need Pastor Moses' forgiveness for from time to time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and he forgives me. He's very gracious like that. But... But in this moment, in this scenario, the offense isn't against him, it's against you. I can't go looking to him to give me forgiveness. I hurt you. I broke uh, your trust. I, I, there is a brokenness in our relationship that needs to be resolved. You alone could forgive me for what happened, for the brokenness I caused in our relationship. And church, so it is with sin in our relationship with God. Sin isn't just some general bad thing out there in the world, right? It's not just some kind of intangible badness out here and, and, and God's goodness over here. Sin's real. It's objective. And, and, and even if it wasn't something we specifically did against God, sin has become this thing in this world where it has actually, like, 
amplified and become a much bigger monster in our world, a darkness which we can all see and acknowledge that at its root is still an offense between us and God, and God alone is able to forgive us. You know, every year around Thanksgiving time, we we try to turn our attention toward God, to giving thanks, to acknowledging his hand of care and provision and protection and shepherding in our lives. And one of the Psalms we look to 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 kind of help us with this is Psalm 100. And, And part of that Psalm, and the reason we have to give thanks, is a recognition, is a belief that we were created by God and we are his. In other words, it's it's talking about this fact that when sin comes into the picture, our offense is against God. Why? Because he created us. He made us. He gave us life. He's he's given us a life. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So I think this is where the, the entire Christian faith begins and depends on. That we were not just, we're, we're not just these, these created beings out there in the world trying to like, establish some relationship with a God. God created us. It began with him. Our whole faith begins in this place where we recognize we have been created by God, and we are his. And, and here's the thing. Since he made us, right, since we are the sheep of his pasture whom he feeds and protects and provides for, well, then we have a special relationship with him. We have a, a special re- relationship with him. And when, when our sin enters the picture of that relationship, it breaks that relationship. We may think, hey, we can, we can, we can operate in the same kind of room with God and be okay, but we can't because there is, there is this thing between us and God. There is this brokenness that's there, and it's not God's fault that it's there. It's man's. It's ours. Uh, last week, we talked about Psalm 51. This understanding is what make, makes King David pray his prayer of confession and repentance in Psalm 51, right? Last week, we talked about how David's sin was, to, was, was adultery, right? He, he broke the covenant of marriage and had a relationship with Bathsheba, who's married to another man. And not only that, but to cover up his sin, he has Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed in battle. So now he's committed adultery, broken the covenant of marriage, and he's committed murder. And you know, the Here's, we're, we're thinking, all right, well, you know what? He's got to go apologize to Uriah. He, he's got to go apologize to Bathsheba. And honestly, he does. He does. He does, right? But that's not where he goes, and nor should he, because his sin, first and foremost, is not against them. It's against God. What does he say in verse 4? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's sin is first and foremost against God. My sin isn't first and foremost against you because I stole $20 from you. My sin is first and foremost against God who created you 
and has established a relationship of peace and trust among his creation. That's what the garden was. I mean, it was much more than that, but that's some of the world in the garden of, of Eden was a place of peace and trust, which we broke. And so when Jesus tells the paralyzed man, child, your sins are forgiven. He's not just forgiving this man for something he's done in his life. He's speaking as God himself. See, the teachers of the law, they may consider Jesus' words blasphemy. But get this, they're only blasphemous if they're not true. Right? Blasphemy is pretending to be what you're not and, 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 and treating something disrespectfully like that. But, but Jesus, he's not pretending anything. He's not hiding anything up. Jesus actually has the authority to forgive sins, which he proves when he heals the paralytic. Now, the, the following verses in our passage have been debated and discussed, and, and you, you read these words, and, and it is confusing, right? It's, you're, it, it's hard to make sense of. You struggle with it. Verse 9, Jesus says to the teacher of the law, which is easier, to, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Well, I don't know, right? Which is easier? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up, take your bed, and walk? Both are easy to say, right? Like I just said both of them multiple times. Both are easy to say, but, but doing them is a whole other issue, right? And, and from, a, from a, a human standpoint, to miraculously heal a man is harder than it is to forgive. Here's the thing. We could get lost in trying to make sense of these questions, and many scholars have for, for many, many years. But in the end, rather than trying to piece together the logic of this, in the end, we need to see that Jesus does both. He does both to prove something. He does both forgive sins and heal this man so that they might know that he actually has the authority to forgive sins. Or like, I could say I forgive you, but, but really, I mean, you guys can't tell if I forgive that person, right? You can take me at my word. But Jesus' power on display says, listen, I can heal this man and I can forgive sins. You want to see that I can do that? Let me show you the one I can show you. Rise up, take your bed and walk. See, in the end, Jesus does both to prove that he has the authority the authority he's been given as the son of God, as God himself, to forgive sins on earth. And at the root of the anger by the teachers of the law is, that, is the assumption that, that Jesus doesn't have this authority, that, that he's speaking out of turn. But, but Jesus says, no, 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 you don't get it. You don't get it. As the son of man... I have authority over all of creation. And, and, and I alone can forgive sins. See, Jesus, Jesus has uses this title on numerous occasions, I think at least 14 times in the book of Mark. 
the Son of Man title he claims for himself. And, and, and it invites us to look back in the Old Testament to the promises that God has already given. In the book of uh, Daniel, Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, we, we read this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Kings, kings, are, king, kings are people with authority. And in this passage, Jesus is the king who's presented before God the Father, the ancient of days, and is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus proclaims throughout the Gospels when he's preaching the word to the people. His dominion is over all of creation. And, and, and so he has the authority to command a paralyzed body to rise up and walk. He has the authority to command the seas to settle. He has the authority to forgive the debt of sin. Church, only God can forgive sins. Jesus is God, and as God's anointed one, his king, Jesus has authority to heal our deepest brokenness, which is sin. But herein lies the problem for many of us with this passage, right? You're with me on this, but for many of us, here is the crux of the passage for us. See, we're more like this paralyzed man than we'd like to admit. We're, we're confident that we know what we truly need if only Jesus would just listen to us. Jesus, we, we know what we need. I need, I've got this issue going on. If only you would hear me and deal with this, my life would be so much better. And here's the thing, we're not only confident of what we need, we're confident we know what the world needs, right? For many of us, we look at the violence in our world and the brokenness around us, and we just can't ignore it, right? We see people who are hungry and homeless. We see families that are struggling, marriages that are broken, and we've got to do something about it. We can do something about it. We've got the answer. We know what, what is the way, the truth, and the life. But the problem is, these are problems that we attack with religion and moralism. There's an underlying belief to these, these, these ideas, this idea of religion and moralism. It's the idea that... that, that I can win God's favor, his blessing, through my obedience. Like, we can fix this. I've just got to be more trusting or more obedient. I can, we, we can do it. We can turn this situation around, God. We just got to keep trying to be better, more faithful followers. It's on us. We can do it. We know what the problem is. We know how to fix it. Our mantra is, is act better 
be more obedient, spread more kindness, be more generous. All these religious actions and behaviors that we think if we do these, will win God's favor and he'll bless our situation. He'll fix the problem as we see it. And, and here's the thing. I'm talking about it as if these things are horrible things. They're not, right? These are great things. But if all we try to do is clean up our world without giving Jesus an audience, well, then we're just healing a paralytic man whose real problem is still going on within. Right? We're just covering up the deeper, more problematic issue in his life. It's like, say someone you know is sick with a fever, and they get the chills. They're shaking uncontrollably. What do you do? You throw a blanket on them. You throw a couple blankets on them. You try to warm them up. You try to help treat those chills. But, but then give it a little time. And what happens to those chills? Well, the chills go away, and then you get the sweats, right? Then you're like, you're pulling off the blankets. You're taking off layers of clothing. You're trying to open windows, get a breeze. You're, you're trying, your, your body has changed completely in response to the underlying issue. See, if, if, we, if all we do is throw blankets on the person with the, with the, the chill or, or take blankets off when they get the sweats, that we're not really dealing with the underlying cause of the fever that's giving them the chills and the sweats. See, what we need is a solution to address the fever within our souls. What we need is not to treat the, the chills and the sweats in our life, to, to try and work on the, 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 the circumstances of our lives, the things that people can see and the things that we experience and, and are aware of moment by moment throughout our day. What we need is a solution to our brokenness and our problems deep within. And so what Mark shows us about Jesus is that we won't truly feed the homeless, heal marriages, and, and bring peace to the violence around this world until we confront the sin within our human hearts. And the only one with authority to forgive sin is Jesus. So if we, if we truly care about our community, if we truly care about those people who are hurting and broken, if we truly care about our families and our marriages, then we've got to start by giving Jesus an audience. No solution is a solution apart from giving Jesus an audience where we, where we listen to hear his diagnosis and his prescription. See, for many people in our world, we tend to think that we know better than Jesus in regards to what's truly needed. We may not say that, but practically speaking, how we live our lives, we, we think we know better. What we really need Jesus to do, what we really need him to do is heal our paralysis. What I really need Jesus to do is to get me a new job. What we really need to do is make sure we've got enough money in our 401k, right? But just as Jesus looked at the paralyzed man, forgave his sins as a first priority, so Jesus looks at us and says, child, child, I want to do a deeper work in your life. 
I want to do a, a further work that heals up the brokenness inside of you. I mean, sure, I could give you your retirement security with a 401k. I, I, I could take care of those car issues or, or, or solve your issues at work. I, I could make your wife respect you or, or miraculously make your husband more empathetic and attentive to you. I can do all those things, but give it a little while. Give it a little while. You're going to want more. Right? Those things will not provide the happiness and the security that you think you want. You don't actually know what you need. You know what you want, but you don't know what you need. So what we need is for God to forgive us for what we stole from him. We need God to do a supernatural work of forgiveness in our soul. We need God to do a supernatural work of forgiveness among us as a people. And God's doing that. That's why he sent his son, Jesus. So you, don't, you don't need me or some other pastor stepping in between you and God to forgive you of your sins. I, I, don't, I don't have the authority that Jesus has to absolve you of your sins. I have the authority to point you to Jesus who has the authority to forgive your sins between you and God. And let me tell you something. He's not going to make you run some obstacle course to receive that forgiveness. That forgiveness is offered to us in and through the life of Jesus Christ. He's saying, child, your sins are forgiven. To all those who come to him, he says, child, your sins are forgiven. It's only one person who can do that, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it's through the life of Jesus that God offers us this new relationship, this new covenant. It's a relationship built on a new agreement. This covenantal relationship has already been established for us, church. This is not something that he's going to do, he's promised to do. He's done it. It was accomplished on the cross. When Jesus took upon himself the curse of the old covenant... And died on that cross 2,000 years ago. This is where, in, in Jesus' words, his blood was poured out for the many, for the forgiveness of sins. He died for the forgiveness of sins. He accomplished the work of forgiveness on the cross. And this is why Jesus has the authority to declare, My child, your sins are forgiven. Problem is, we, we think we know better. That's the problem with this passage. We think we just need to be lowered down into Jesus' presence, and if you could just fix this issue that I see, my, my life will be better. But church, it's not true. It, there's a street in Hollywood, the, the, the walk, of, walk of Fame, right? We know this. We, you know, the, it's that, uh, that street where there's stars plastered on the, on the walkway and names etched in. People put their handprints on there. And, and, and you know, for, for many actors and actresses, they dream of the day of getting their name etched into these stars on the walkway. They, they, they dream of the pomp and circumstance of, of seeing their name etched into the walkway of this street in Hollywood. But, but here's the thing. I guarantee 
that when that day comes, they will celebrate and, and, and be overjoyed and excited about this day that's finally come that they've dreamt about for so long. But guess what will happen the next morning when they wake up? There is an emptiness that they will feel. They, they, there is a, a discouragement and a disappointment and an emptiness they will feel because all that they thought they needed was not at all what they needed. See, we tend to have restless hearts that are not easily satisfied. We want more and more, and guess what? When we get it, we want more. Brothers and sisters, we're quick to think that if all, all we have to do is remove the, the roof and lower ourselves into Jesus' presence and, and tell him what our problem is, and all our problems will go away. He'll make us happy again. But thank God that Jesus knows better. Thank God that even though this may be what we think, he loves us so much to give us what we actually need, what we truly want in the long run. Jesus was sent for a deeper and greater purpose to establish a new covenant, a new relationship through his own sacrifice. In Jeremiah, he describes this new relationship in chapter 31. Let me just read a couple verses. We'll end here. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I'll put it and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer, uh, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and, his, and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me. For the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. This is the covenant that Jesus establishes through his death and resurrection. A new arrangement, a new relationship, a new agreement with us and God. That is completely dependent on the work of Jesus. Whose blood was poured out for the forgiveness of, of sins for the many. And so when he comes and he looks at you and me and says, child, your sins are forgiven. He is healing up the deepest, most broken place of our life. Jesus alone has that authority. So this morning, I leave you with this. I just, I implore you, stop telling Jesus what you need him to do and trust him to do that deeper work in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you desire to do a deeper work in us. You have the authority to forgive, forgive us of our sins because against you and you only have we sinned. You sent your son Jesus to make that clear to us that you've given him authority on earth to forgive these sins, to make us whole to bind up our brokenness. And yet, Lord, there is a part of our hearts and minds that says, hang, hang on, Jesus. I, I, know, I know my sins need to be taken care of, but Lord, I got this issue at work. Or there's things going on at home. 
I've got this pain that just, it, 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 my heart is broken over this pain. That I just wish you could, if you could do something there, Lord, I, I will be so much happier, more content. I will trust in you more, Lord. That, that's what our heart says, Lord. We, we, we are slaves to that idea of, uh, of religion, of doing more and, and, and winning you over. And Lord, I ask you to forgive us of this. Renew our hearts. Renew our heart of worship, Lord. We come to you. And Lord, I desire for all of us to hear you say clearly, child, your sins are forgiven. And then for us to not follow up with, yeah, but what about this, Lord? I mean, do you see this over here? Can you take care of this in my life? Lord, give us the security to know that all we truly need is to hear Jesus say, child, your sins are forgiven. And then, Lord, to trust that there is no better place for our lives to be in than in your hands, where you, Heavenly Father, are providing, protecting, guiding, and leading us through this world and into the life beyond. And so, Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. We love him. Give us ears to hear you today, to hear your son say, child, your sins are forgiven. For we pray this in his name.